excitement Adventure Mystery Around every corner No matter what you choose Fantasy awaits you It's time to be Your Path, the podcast where you are in charge of your own destiny. Ahoy there, mates. This is David King, the writer of this month's episode of Pick Your Path, The Secret of Mulligan Cove. This is episode 6.5, where the choices will be made for you and the ending you'll get comes after a long series of twists, turns, and perils, you won't be able to engage in as much of the treasure hunt, so if you really want to solve the mystery, I recommend going back to episode 6. That's the more fun one. Our theme song is by Christopher Wrigley of Bunhouse Jingles at customjingles.net. Our logo art is by Wayne Jensen of waynejensenart.com. Pick Your Path is narrated by the impeccable Matt Hawley and produced and edited by Matt Benson. Chapter 1. That train trip took forever. At least that's what it feels like as you step out onto the platform and breathe in the briny afternoon air. The view for most of the ride had been endless expanses of woodland swooping past, with hardly a break in the trees for the last hour. You stretch your legs and bounce around, trying to get the feeling back in them after all the sitting. Those compartments were cramped. You can't complain too much, though. You've come to the seaside town of Mulligan Cove for their annual Tall Ship Festival. As the new event coordinator, you've been hired to make sure everything at the festival goes, well, ship shape. It sounds daunting, and you don't know the first thing about ships. But this is your first big hire since graduating from college, and you want to make a good impression. Especially since the festival committee is covering all of your traveling expenses. You did take some time to read about the town on the way out. Looking up past the old-fashioned train station, you can see that it matches the idea of a stored New England village to the letter. Many of the buildings look like they date back to the early 1900s, at least, and plenty of them sport some sort of nautical decoration on the outside. There's an abundance of pirate flags flying, no doubt in anticipation for this week's tourists. Kids love pirate stuff, after all. The only thing you don't see right away is some sort of directory. You already have a room set up at the Black Crow Inn, but who knows where that is. With a sigh, you set your suitcase down and get the manila folder tucked under your arm that contains all the festival info. You rifle through its contents, finding the town map by its faux-aged and weathered appearance. You chuckle as you scan it. They really are trying to sell their meager history of smuggling and piracy. Suddenly, you feel someone collide with your shoulder hard, Sending your folder flying and its contents spilling all over the platform, you manage to catch yourself, but the man that bumped into you falls onto his hands and knees. He's dressed in a black coat, which seems weirdly out of place in the warm afternoon, and has a flat cap jammed awkwardly on his head. Cursing, he glares up at you for a moment, and then scrabbles among the papers on the ground. Confused and slightly irritated, you crouch beside him. You alright? You say, trying to be the bigger person. Here, let me, uh... Back off! The man growls, throwing up a hand. You're taken aback by how rude he is. Don't appreciate the way he's just tossing your paperwork around. Other people on the platform are staring, though no one offers to help. 
After a few seconds, the man grabs something from the ground, shows it in his coat pocket, and is on his feet again, marching quickly toward the waiting train without a backward glance. Well, excuse you, you call after his retreating back. Feeling flustered, you bend down to pick up your papers and get them back in the folder, and then unfold the town map. Some people, you swear. You blink, confused. The map you're looking at is completely different. It still shows the whole cove, but it's covered with lines and crosses. Strange marks drawn in smudged and faded black and red. What's more, the paper feels thicker, dustier. You fold it again, stunned. You can hardly believe it. This looks and feels like a genuine treasure map. There must have been a mix-up when that man bumped into you, and now you have whatever he dropped. You look up at the train, but you can't see the man anywhere obvious. The horn blares and you see the station hands closing the doors. If you hurry, you might be able to scoot back onto the train and give him his property back. But now you're curious about this map. Is it really what you think it is? And that guy was pretty darn rude to you. So why should you give him back his map? Finders keepers, right? If you try to find the man, skip to chapter 2. If you keep the map for yourself, skip to chapter 4. Chapter 4 Doesn't take you long to find and check in at the Black Crow Inn, a rustic place prominently located by the little town square. Once you get your key and drop your luggage in your cozy room, you turn your attention back to the unusual acquisition from the train station. Unfolding the map now with more time to study it, you see it depicts Mulligan Cove's landscape, the faded lines still clearly dividing what is land and water, and the river that flows into the cove. The map shows a much smaller town, simple boxes labeled with cursive script as various buildings. You recognize a couple of landmarks on the map that still stand today, like the lighthouse on the northwestern point of the cove and the old fort built on the side of a hill facing the harbor. What you do find more challenging are symbols and dotted lines scrawled around the map. Looking carefully, you see that several X's have been drawn in specific spots, both in red and black. The lighthouse, the fort, and a field to the west of town are all marked with black X's. A dotted line from the fort's X zigzags into the southern woods and reaches a red X along the river, while another connects to the red X between the field and the lighthouse. At the top right corner of the map, just above the detailed compass rose, a strange collection of lines, dashes and dots that look to be some sort of code, with a tiny skull and crossbones drawn above that. You can feel your hands shake a little as it finally settles, that if those X's and Jelly Roger mark mean what you think they mean, you are holding a no-doubt authentic treasure map. You knew Mulligan Cove had some minor history of pirates, but this is completely unexpected. It's really no wonder the man who bumped into you was so desperate. Had you known, you might have given it back. Or would you? Really, why pass up the opportunity to see where this map leads? Even if there's no treasure, it's bound to give you a good adventure. And you'll probably pick up some good knowledge about this town and its history. With your mind made up, you leave your gear in your room, don a coat to hide the map in, and head back outside. Skip to Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Mulligan Cove's town square is fairly busy. With a hustle and bustle of activity you're not sure the sleepy port normally has, lined with storefronts, an ice cream parlor, an antique shop, a seafood restaurant, and the like, a small shaded island of green lies in the middle, where the bronze statue of a navy sailor and an old-fashioned bandstand both sit prominently. A banner hung from the bandstand announces a lighthouse benefit concert to take place during the Tall Ship Festival. Though it's tiny by park standards, several children play in the grass while their parents look on from benches. 
You consult the map for a moment, and then think about where to go from here. Across the way on the harbor side of the square is a Victorian building marked by a hanging sign as the Mulligan Cove Maritime Museum, the place you were supposed to check in when you arrived. It might be a good idea to check that out and maybe ask a few questions. There's also the road leading out toward the lighthouse, and the other that will take you near the trail to the fort. If you go to the Maritime Museum, skip to Chapter 22. If you take the northern road to the lighthouse, skip to Chapter 13. If you take the southern road toward the hiking trails, skip to Chapter 6. Chapter 22 You step inside the Maritime Museum. A little bell above the door ringing as you open it, and are greeted by the sight of a huge model clipper ship in a glass case, dominating the middle of the room. The walls are a host to all sorts of nautical bric-a-brac, Anchors, harpoons, signal flags, the whole nine yards. An older man with thick glasses and salt and pepper hair looks up from his position behind the front desk. Ah, hello, he greets you. Feel free to take a look around. Admission is free for the duration of the festival. Uh, thanks, you reply. I'm actually here to ask some questions about the festival. I'm the event coordinator. You give him your name. He beams at you and comes around the desk to shake your hand. Glad to meet you. My name's Daryl. I'm the curator here. I'd heard you were coming, but I was expecting you a little bit earlier than this. Was your train late? You shrug. It's a long story. Daryl chuckles. <laughs> Fair enough, so what can I do you for? If you ask Daryl about the map directly, skip to chapter 36. If you ask Daryl about the pirates of Mulligan Cove, skip to chapter 33. Chapter 33. It's better you keep the info about the map to yourself for the moment. Well, I understand Mulligan Cove has a little bit of pirate history, you say, considering all the skulls and crossbones I've seen outside. Arr, it's true, matey, <laughs> says Daryl. I mean, they're over-exaggerating it a bit, but we did have a few pirates in our town's history. Any particularly famous ones? You ask. Daryl shakes his head. Well, not to the level of Blackbeard or Captain Kidd. Most pirates that operated out of the cove were fairly small time, especially after the fort was built to guard the harbor. Petty smugglers and gunrunners, really, and an American privateer or two made berth here. But there was McCormick. The name doesn't ring any bells to you. Who was that? Ah, uh, Sean McCormick is a very interesting character, Daryl explains. He was a Scotsman who came to Mulligan Cove in the 1790s. There's a lot of local lore about him since he was a pretty eccentric character, but I don't want to bore you with all the details. If you want to keep asking about McCormick, skip to chapter 39. If you want to change tack and ask about the map, skip to chapter 36. Chapter 39 No, please continue, you tell Daryl. I'm definitely interested. Daryl smiles. Oh good, it really is a fascinating story. In fact, follow me. We have our own little wing of the museum about it. You follow Daryl into another room. This one an obvious pirate exhibit, judging by the Jelly Roger flag hanging on the wall, and the glass cases displaying cutlasses, pistols, and muskets. Daryl draws your attention to a portrait hanging on one wall. A smirking man with a close-tipped red beard and mustache, dressed in a red coat and a plumed tricorn hat. This is McCormick, explains Daryl. Or at least the best visual depiction we have. It was painted not long after his death, and was done by a local farmer who used to drink with him whenever he was in port. As you can see, McCormick was a bit of a flashy individual, and the stories about him back it up. The thing is, McCormick embodied the image of the romantic pirate. 
the kind that didn't actually exist, you add. Exactly, nods Daryl. He was a man in the wrong time, you might say. The golden age of pirates had ended long before he was born, but he set out to be that sort of buccaneer regardless. All the stories tell that whenever McCormick's ship was in the harbor, he would fly the Jolly Roger from the masthead just to let everyone know who he was. He boasted loudly and often to anyone who would let him about how he was a force to be reckoned with in the West Indies, telling wild stories about pitched sea battles and mountains of plunder. The local constabulary kept an eye on him, but most of the town figured he was just an eccentric and let him talk. After all, he spent his money fast and free and never did any wrongdoing in or around the cove. So you think McCormick was just playing pirate? You ask. That, or at least playing up his deeds at sea, Duro replies. Clearly, he had a ship and crew, and he was getting the money from somewhere. Some records show he took letters of mark and attacked British vessels on America's behalf during the Revolution. But he must have done some genuine pirating as well. There's not a lot of records about that, unfortunately. What we do know is that in 1803, McCormick's luck ran out. The authorities managed to get some incriminating information about him and his ship was ambushed coming back into the harbor. McCormick managed to escape for a while by abandoning his crew, but he was eventually captured and thrown into the dungeon up at the fort, where he spent the remainder of his days. You shake your head. No pirate ever gets away with it in the end, do they? Daryl chuckles. Not often, no. McCormick's story is not unique, but it was that exaggerated need to be a pirate that stuck with this town. It was like he was trying to prove something. Come to think of it, one thing I hadn't mentioned yet was that McCormick had a young daughter who he loved dearly. Though, we don't know much about her. Perhaps he was trying to impress her. You're not looking around the room. Did any of these things in here belong to McCormick himself? A few, says Daryl. Some of these were apparently custom made by the man himself. McCormick was quite the craftsman. Take this piece over here, for instance. He directs your attention to an elaborate woodcut, showing a ship braving the waves of the open sea, framed by a skull and crossbones above and mermaids on the sides. McCormick made this as a gift to his daughter. You try to hide a small start as you look at the frame under the skulls and crossbones. The lines, dashes, and symbols that seem randomly decorative remind you of the code on the map. You think if you compare them, you might be able to get a major clue, but then you run the risk of Daryl knowing about the map. You could try to find a way to distract him, or you could come clean and hope it doesn't compromise you. If you try to find a way to distract Daryl, skip to chapter 45. If you want to reveal the map to Daryl, skip to chapter 46. Chapter 46. Time to spill the beans, it seems. Daryl, is it possible that McCormick could have hidden treasure here in Mulligan Cove? Daryl smirks. Uh, you'd be surprised how often that gets asked. No, I don't believe so. Pirates burying their treasure is just one of those popular myths. But wasn't McCormick a man who based himself around pirate myths, you say? You also smirk as you reveal the map. Daryl studies the map for a moment, then his eyes go wide. Goodness, this looks authentic. Where did you get this? You take a deep breath and explain the convoluted events that put this map in your hands. At the end, you ask, Was this stolen from you? Daryl shakes his head gravely. No, but I've seen that fellow you described skulking around town. He straightens up and looks stoic. The Mulligan Cove Maritime Museum is willing to back you up. What do you need? Surprised at how cooperative Daryl seems, you point to the woodcut. Can I get a rubbing from that? 
A few minutes later, with Daryl's help, you've managed to get an impression of the woodcut on a piece of thin paper. Laying the map on his desk, Daryl turning the museum sign closed, he put the paper over it, matching the rubbing of the skull and crossbones with the one on the map. As you suspected, the lines come together to spell a message. Happy birthday, Anna. Find the numbers. Use the clues. Put them against the X that marks the spot. And have one last gift from your loving father. Daryl is dumbfounded. I... I never knew. I didn't want to believe it, but this, this makes sense, though. What a discovery. Was McCormick's daughter local? You ask. No, but he talked about her a lot, according to legend. Replies Daryl. Apparently she was back in Scotland. The only record we have is that she died at the age of 14. But this... This is an incredible find. What do you plan to do? I'm going to find those numbers. You respond. Glad to have a solid lead on what to look for. Chuckling, Daryl puts a hand on your shoulder. <laughs> I'll make you a deal. If you give the museum access to whatever you find, we'll deal with the legal part of your uh, archaeological mission and get paid for the immediate worth of whatever you get. That seems fair to you. You make the agreement. You leave as a temporary research assistant of the Maritime Museum. Now to get the treasure hunt going proper. You need to start looking for the X's and the numbers that are clues. If you go to the old fort, skip to chapter 6. If you head to the lighthouse, skip to chapter 13. Chapter 6 Getting to the old fort takes a bit of a hike up a winding road. But soon you're up among the trees and making your way along the old stone battlements. The fort is relatively small, really more of a lookout post or garrison. According to the sign you saw on the way there, it was built by the French before the British colonies really rolled in. And it's a protected historical landmark. The view from the battlements is very impressive, letting you see the entire landscape of Mulligan Cove below. You're not alone in enjoying the vista as dozens of tourists bustle around you, snapping pictures, or in the case of the kids, climbing around the restored cannons that still aim out to the sea. With this vantage point to compare, you look at the map and gauge locations. From here, you can see the town directly below, to the northwest lighthouse on the point. You can also make out a swath of overgrown fields through the trees where the third black X is on your map, and a tumble of boulders near the lighthouse road that roughly correspond to the red X. The second red X is trickier to spot, since it's hidden somewhere in the forest. You try to follow the river from town, but its source is hidden somewhere beneath the oak and pine canopy. As you turn to go investigate the fort itself, you spot the familiar and unwelcome bulk of the man from the train moving along the battlements. He hasn't seen you yet, but he's coming toward you and scanning the crowd, and you do not like the look of the scowl on his face. If you duck into the fort interior to hide, skip to chapter 32. If you attempt to blend in with the other tourists, skip to chapter 9. Chapter 32 Thinking fast, you duck into the first doorway you can find, which leads you into the cool interior of the fort. The short corridor ends in a spiral staircase going down, which you take two steps at a time as you hear the sound of running footsteps echoing behind you. Immediately at the bottom is a well-lit gift shop, which throws you for a loop but doesn't slow you down. You duck behind a display rack of cheap model ships as a man chasing you reaches the stairs, almost crashing into an elderly woman as she approaches the stairs. While she yells at the man, you creep around the purchase counter and crouch there, hidden from the stairwell by a t-shirt rack. The cashier, a bored teenager, gives you a sidelong glance but doesn't lift her chin from her hand. 
The tirade the elderly woman is throwing at the man from the train is getting her attention. You hiss at the girl. She looks at you. That man is harassing me. Call security. The girl rolls her eyes and shrugs, pressing a button under the counter. Meanwhile, the man tries to shove the old woman aside, but she hits him with her purse and becomes even more shrill. You take the opportunity to crouch run to the nearest exit. Another short corridor, followed by another flight of stairs. This one marked with an arrow sign reading, Dungeon. You don't want to hit any dead ends, but you going back puts you right in the path of your pursuer. You descend. When you reach the end, you're disappointed to find only a locked wooden door blocking the way. The sign mounted to it says this area is off limits to the public, but a barred window lets you peek into a dark stone room lined with cells. Another sign on the wall tells how these cells were mostly used to keep smugglers, thieves, and other criminals for short periods, but that this place once housed a pirate, Sean McCormick, for a number of years. You frown at the door, certain this is where a clue from the map is hidden. There might be a way to get a key from the staff if you do some sleuthing, as long as the man from upstairs has been dealt with, though. You also consider leaving to follow the map to the Red Axe in the woods. Since you're already close by, it may provide the extra clue you need to solve the puzzle. If you go snooping around the fort, skip to chapter 24. If you follow the map toward the Red X in the woods, skip to chapter 19. Chapter 19. Leaving the fort behind, you hike down a little woodland trail that takes you to the edge of the river. You follow it upstream a little ways as it narrows into a creek, keeping an eye out for anything unusual. Eventually, you leave the hiking trail and branch off into the undergrowth, taking care to avoid any poison oak or thorny plants. A few squirrels dart through the brush, and you hear the distant sound of a woodpecker. But you appear to be completely alone out here. The branches overhead become thicker and more entangled, keeping you in a deep shade. You hold the course and stay close to the creek. It doesn't take long for you to see something unexpected through the trees. A Jolly Roger flying from a pole. As you get closer, you see the pole is connected to an impressive treehouse built in the branches of a thick old oak tree. Nearby, the creek widens into a pond, fed by a small waterfall. You can see why someone would build a treehouse here, but it's strange to see one so far off the beaten path. You tense up when you see what you think are shadows moving beyond the windows. Would it be better to let whoever's there know you're coming, or to try to be stealthy and avoid drawing attention? If you call up to the treehouse, skip to chapter 29. If you opt to sneak around instead, skip to chapter 35. Chapter 29. Trying not to be suspicious, you call up to the inhabitants of the treehouse, letting them know someone's coming through. In response, a pair of faces appear in the window to stare at you. Both are boys that look to be about 10 years old, one wearing a red bandana and cheap toy eye patch. The other wearing a green bandana. Oh, Avast! Who goes there? Cries Red Bandana in his best Long John Silver voice. Are you friend or foe? Friend, I hope. You respond. Permission to come aboard, Captain. Eh, blay that! Yells Green Bandana. Stay where you are, landlubber. We be standing by to repel boarders. Plus, adds Red Bandana in a normal voice. Our mums wouldn't like us talking to strangers. Who are you? You introduce yourself. I mean no harm. You don't even have to come down from there, I just want to check out the waterfall. The boys look at each other, then duck out of sight. A few seconds pass and they pop up again. Arr, stand by, says Green Bandana. These waters be treacherous. We'll be right down. 
A rope ladder unfurls from the bottom of the treehouse, and the two kids take a deliberate path around you. Red Bandana has a wooden baseball bat over one shoulder, while Green Bandana has a plastic sword tucked under a sash at his waist. Well, I'm Jonas, says Red Bandana. Oh, this is Terry. This treehouse is supposed to be a secret spot for us kids. What are you doing here? They say discretion is the better part of valor, but you figure these kids might know about the area, and you need to show you're trustworthy. You decide you'll be honest with them to a degree, and tell them how you're following a map looking for clues, giving them bits and pieces of information of what you know. By the time you tell your story and show them the map to back it up, they're both white-eyed. Holy cow! Says Terry. A real treasure hunt! Hey... Can we help you look for it? Jonas nudges Terry with his elbow. Oh, now hold on. Remember they warned us about this in school. It could be a trick. He gives you a questioning look. What are you looking for? You chuckle. Now that's smart, Jonas. I'm looking for an X that marks a spot around here. You point to the map. I think there's a clue that will help me in the fort. Oh yeah, chimes Terry. We know where there's an X. Jonas nods. Yep. We'll show you. Just follow us carefully. We put booby traps all around. You follow the boys' instructions, keeping your distance but shadowing their path. They take you up to where the waterfall splashes into the pond, then point to a nook behind the waterfall. It seems just big enough for a hand to go in, and you notice a faint, faded red X painted just above the hole. The first kids to build this treehouse found this. Terry explains. They found a small box in there, too. What was in it? You ask. A key, Jonas answers. A really old, rusty key. It's kept up in the treehouse now and gets passed to each new generation of kids that come along. We don't know what it's for. You smile knowingly. <laughs> I think I do. You say and tell them about the locked door in the fort's dungeon. Do you think I could borrow it? They both shake their heads. Uh-uh, no way, it's special, says Terry. Unless... He looks at Jonas. What if we used the key? Jonas nods. Yeah, there you go. You can't have the key, but if you let us in on some of the treasure, we'll go with you and use our key to help. You sigh inwardly. Having a couple of kids tagging along is only going to make things more difficult. There are some really dangerous people looking for this treasure, too, you warn. I don't want you two to get in trouble. Then you'll keep a wither eye open, mighty, says Terry. Besides, this is exactly what Sam McChesterfield would do, right, Jonas? Exactly right, replies Jonas with a grin. Now we'll get the key, and then you lead the way. Skip to chapter 42. Chapter 42. With your new friends in tow, you make the long trek back to the fort. The crowds have lightened a bit since earlier. You're not sure if that's going to make this next part harder or easier. The kids explain that like a lot of other local children, they've been to the fort dozens of times, but usually in the company of their families or on school field trips. Oh, they never let us play around, grumbles Jonas. All they want to tell us is about how it was built and who was in charge and blah blah blah. I just want to know how many pirate ships the cannon blew up. Or how many pirates were locked in the dungeon, adds Terry, rubbing his hands together excitedly. Guess we're about to find out. Oh, this is so cool. 
You make a shushing gesture as you retrace your steps to the stairs to the dungeon. You give them your plan. All three of you will go down to test the key on the door. And then they'll stand outside while you look around. Neither of them want to be left out of the best part, but you point out that someone needs to stand guard and make sure the door doesn't close. It's also better for them to run if need be. You genuinely don't want these kids to get in trouble. And begrudgingly, they agree before you reach the door. The rusty key, surprisingly, fits into the old lock on the door. You pull it open and step into the gloomy chamber, lit by a weak rays of light coming from a high, narrow, and barred window on the far wall. Since the dungeon only has four cells, your search is fairly thorough. You check the dusty floors and the dank ceiling stones for any hint or clue. Finally, your gaze falls on a neck scratched into the wall of a cell, and just below that, a series of tally marks. Five, to be exact. The letters SM have been crudely etched next to them. A shrill sound echoing through the chamber almost makes you jump out of your skin. You catch your breath when you realize it was just the sound of a cell phone ringtone coming from the entrance. You try to commit what you just saw to memory as you leave, meeting Jonas and Terry at the entrance. Terry is muttering into his phone and he snaps it closed when you arrive. Aw oh man, that was my mom, he says. She wants us back at my house pronto. You didn't tell her where you was, did you? Asked Jonas. Oh, of course not, Terry pockets the phone. I said we were still at the treehouse, but she's going to be mad if she finds out we're here with... <sighs> he trails off as he points at you. So, did you find anything? Jonas asks you. You shake your head. Nothing specific. It was worth a try, but it looks empty. The two boys look disappointed. Oh man. Mumbles Jonas. And now we gotta go too. You better keep your promise, says Terry. Or we'll send you to Davy Jones. You tell them it's fine, that you'll keep your end of the bargain if you find the treasure. You're not entirely sure how honest you're being since these two did help. It's better they not be involved though. Once the three of you reach the top of the stairs, Terry and Jonas wave to you and take off at a run, taking the key with them. As for you, free of your impromptu wards, you set your sights on your next map goal. Your next stop, the lighthouse. Skip to chapter 13. Chapter 13. The northern road winds through town a bit before crossing a bridge over the river. It's an easy walk, and when you clear the last couple of rustic houses, the vista opens up and the paved road becomes hard-packed dirt. You can see the lighthouse towering on the point in the distance. Ocean on one side and woodland on the other. Your walk down the road is relatively peaceful, as the wind coming off the sea carries a scent of brine and the cries of seagulls. Just as you're coming to a fork in the road, one marked by a tumble of large rocks and boulders, you spot a black pickup truck heading your way from the lighthouse. At the rate you're going, it will probably reach the crossroads at the same point you do. The driver might know a thing or two about the area, and could give you some pointers, especially if it's the lighthouse keeper or some related caretaker. But you also run the risk of revealing yourself in the map in that case. If you try to flag down the truck and ask questions, skip to chapter 17. If you try to get off the road and hide, skip to chapter 23. Chapter 23. It may be paranoia, but you nevertheless clamber up among the boulders to hide. You find a niche between two large rocks that gives you cover, still grants you a fair view. As the truck passes by, you catch a quick glimpse of the driver, a woman with red hair. The truck carries on down the road away from town. 
Before you can creep back out of your hiding spot, something catches your eye, almost hidden by a lip in the rock. The faded red X, hand-painted onto the stone near you. And beneath that, three red dashes followed by a black dot. You think there might be the faintest outline of a black box around the dashes and dot, but it's very hard to tell. Assuming this might be a clue, you check it against your map. Though it shows no road, the bridge on the map is roughly the same place as the bridge you crossed. Using that as a guide, you think you might be where the red X between the lighthouse and the field is. With that in mind, you make a note about the X marked spot and step back onto the rope. You can either head for the lighthouse, or you can go down the smaller side road that meanders into abandoned farmland. If you go to the lighthouse, skip to chapter 30. If you take the side road, skip to chapter 14. Chapter 14 Though not desolate, there's something oddly lonely about this area. Presently, you come to another road, this one barely more than a rut of tire tracks. It goes through one of the fields of swaying grass to a weathered farmhouse in the middle. You spot the same pickup truck from earlier parked outside. Checking the map, you venture to guess that the farmhouse might be where the next X on the map is located. It's the only real landmark you've seen for a while, though you imagine the house may have been built after the map was made. Cautiously, you approach the farmhouse, thinking about your next decision. You might simply knock on the door and ask to be let in, which means you'll eventually have to explain that you're looking for a hidden treasure. Maybe staying quiet and getting a sense of the property would be best. If you knock on the door, skip to chapter 26. If you sneak around and spy on the place, skip to chapter 31. Chapter 31. You creep quietly around the outside of the property. The farmhouse is not very big, though it is tall and a little imposing in its weathered state. As you come around the back of the house, you notice an old cellar door that doesn't appear to be locked. Testing the handle finds you can lift it easily. The boards groan and the hinges squeak as you do. You pause when you hear a voice from inside the house. The sound seems to be coming from an open window nearby, but you can't make out the words. You hear a female voice having a one-sided conversation. This might be the best time for you to investigate the cellar of the place unnoticed. Then again, you might be able to listen in and find out exactly who lives here. If you go to the cellar, skip to chapter 43. If you eavesdrop on the conversation, skip to chapter 5. Chapter 5 You carefully edge up to the window, taking a quick peek inside. The red-headed woman you saw on the truck is standing in an empty room, talking on a cell phone. As she paces, she turns toward the window and you quickly duck away. Her conversation carries on. Alright, Gunther, I get it, she says, clearly annoyed. We all make mistakes, I know. But you had one job and you blew it. How do you think the boss is going to feel about that? You know she's not that forgiving. A pause comes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yes, I'm going to keep an eye out. Where have you looked so far? This is a tiny little town. It shouldn't be too hard to find one person with a treasure map. Look, I've already got things covered at the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, just like we thought. X marks the spot. The number? 1803. It was on a painting. Well, we gathered that much, sure. But I don't know which number in that goes into the combination. And see, this is why you should have caught the earlier train. All this sounds fairly cryptic to you, but you listen carefully as it goes on, especially as you start putting two and two together. The woman sighs after a lengthy pause. Fine, I'll meet up with you in a bit. 
We've made some progress, but until we can crack some of the codes, we're flying blind. And we need that map here. Despite what the boss says. We can figure it out on our own. If she just trusted... Yeah, okay, the Maritime Museum, sure. Be there in a few. A beep. Followed by footsteps and a door slamming. A minute later, you hear the truck driving away. You realize you've been holding your breath. You let out a sigh of relief. Clearly this woman is in league with the man from the train. And that's double bad news. You're certainly more justified exploring the house now with the woman gone. You pull open the cellar door and descend into a basement crowded with farm tools and other antique junk. You give the place a thorough search and eventually spot a trap door hatch in the floor. Only obvious because it has a rope handle sticking up. You pull it open revealing a hole into cold and inky darkness. The upturned part of the door has two planks nailed across it, marking the shape of an X. Your only concern now is to find out what's down there. You acquire both a long length of tied off rope and a flashlight nearby. And carefully, edge your way inside. The climb down is not as bad as you thought. Once you trusted your inherent rope climbing skills, the smell of the sea is strong here, and you hear the sound of dripping water echoing somewhere far off. When your shoes hit the ground, you quickly turn on your flashlight, revealing a rough-hewn tunnel disappearing into the distance. You steal your nerves and venture down it. Skip to Chapter 18. Chapter 18 After what feels like ages of travel, the tunnel opens up into a wider natural cavern, complete with stalagmites and stalactites. It's an eerie sight, made even eerier by the large and out-of-place stone door on the opposite side of the cavern from you. Covered in algae and dripping with water, the door looks like it was hauled from the depths of the ocean, with a pair of genuine crossbones mounted in the middle. Move in to take a closer look at this grim portal. On either side of the crossbones are large wooden wheel dials with single-digit numbers carved into them. Two similar dials sit next to each other below the bones. You give a couple of the dials an experimental turn, seeing that each runs from 0 to 9. It appears to be a massive combination lock. Now the question is, do you know how to solve it? If you know the solution, skip to that chapter number. Otherwise, keep track of this chapter number so you can come straight back later. Then skip to chapter 6. Chapter 15 Everything clicks into place, literally, as you put all the clues you've picked up together. 3 times 5 equals 15. You hear a distinct booming click as the locking mechanism gives way. With a trembling hand, you reach out and grasp the edge of the door. You grunt as you pull it open. The room beyond is little more than an alcove. But it's the large sea chest sitting inside that gets all your attention. You kneel beside it, putting your hands on the ancient wood and limed over latch. The lid lifts easily. You stare in awe at a king's ransom of gold and jewels glittering in the beam of your flashlight. This is the kind of plunder every pirate or treasure hunter dreams of. Spanish doubloons, silver pesos, necklaces of gold, an emerald nearly as big as your palm, and so much more. You can't help but laugh at the sight. What started out earlier today as a freak accident has led you to the secret of Mulligan Cove. Whatever you decide to do with this discovery is yours to make alone. Odd. You feel a strange chill, a little colder than the damp cavern around you. Something moves out of the corner of your eye, and when you turn to look, 
you see a ghostly figure with a red beard and dressed in pirate garb staring at you. Your heart freezes in your chest, but then, just as suddenly, the apparition is gone, leaving only a lingering feeling of dread. The End? This podcast is a part of the Benview Network. You can find this and other podcasts like it at BenviewNetwork.com.